You're listening to the Dietetic Discussion with me, Dr. Anne Holdaway. Welcome along to this special episode where we take a look back over some of the key points and takeaway messages from the Dietetic Discussion inaugural podcast series. Series one gave me the privilege to host five fascinating discussions with six expert guests on a variety of topics ranging from protein quality and quantity, fibre and bowel function, the role of the Advisory Committee on Borderline Substances, nutrition in ICU, and how COVID changed our dietetic practice. Before we revisit some of the key messages across Series 1, I'd like to take a moment to express my sincere thanks to the team at Nutrinovo for supporting the podcast. Working with such a professional and innovative team has been a real pleasure for me, but I'd like to highlight that without Nutrinovo's support, these podcasts simply wouldn't be possible. Hi, I'm Dr. Anne Holdaway, and you're listening to The Dietetic Discussion, the podcast that over the past year has explored a host of hot topics with leading clinicians, providing our listeners with insights into areas of dietetics through an objective and evidence-based lens, whilst equally acknowledging some of the grey areas within our field. At the heart of these podcasts lies the desire to provide helpful insights into the world of nutrition and dietetics and continuous education for healthcare professionals and dietitians at all levels whilst delivering key information which can be transferred into your everyday practice. Ordinarily at this point I'd be introducing our guest. This episode however follows a slightly different format as we take this opportunity to look back over some of the key learning points and common themes highlighted by series one. Throughout the course of the podcast's inaugural series a frequently recurring theme has been the importance of collaborative working. Whether that be simply learning from more experienced dietitians around us and within your department or networks, or utilising the skills of the multidisciplinary team. We're going to start by hearing from Aaron Boyson about his experiences of the importance of collaboration through the COVID-19 pandemic. Obviously, splitting into teams and all working on one course helped me learn from other dietitians and how they would handle various different things. And I stole ideas from them and I've used those ideas multiple times as it sort of had to apply to different situations. And that's really helped me. And I think what's also really been helpful is at the time, I think it wasn't just the hospital where I work or the, the um, my team that was helping out and the the senior dietitians that work there, but the whole, the whole system changed to help us. So there was multiple different webinars, um, tutorials, all collated by the brilliant work there the BDA critical care group did and they all collated it all together and I was able to sort of as a dietitian new to the area almost work my way through those those resources what some made by the critical care group but also other hospitals around the country had made their resources and shared them with the rest of the country so I was able to sort of read the same tutorial by different trusts see what they were looking at what's their format of documentation what's what are they doing what are we doing and it helped me to learn a lot more about a certain area there was also things done by the physios where I work. They did like tutorials for nursing staff on ventilator settings and different things that were, were new to a large proportion of nursing staff. And I and a few other dietitians sat in on them um, so that we could also learn about the ventilator settings and learn a little bit about what they meant, what they meant for patients. 
and then sort of join that with our dietetic knowledge and think about what they would mean for patients in regards to their nutritional intake. And I think we noticed quite early, it might be quite a challenge, not just on ICU, but also pre and, and post ICU. As COVID-19 ravaged through the UK, it not only united the dietetic profession, but helped us unite with other professionals in achieving a common aim. This next clip is taken from episode three in our first series with Professor Phil Atherton. Here, Phil emphasises the relationship between activity and protein intake in influencing muscle mass and how we as dietitians might collaborate with physiotherapists. Um, so, you know, there is, a, there is an absolute, you know, reciprocal relationship between activity um, and protein intake. And we don't really fully understand the mechanisms as to, you know, how inactivity limits um, our use of nutrients and how activity necessarily fully promotes it. But we certainly know that is, that is, that is true. So that's why, for example, from a clinical standpoint, um, you know, it's, it's fine to get, it's great to get the nutrition right. It's better than fine. It's great to get the nutrition right. But we've got to get people moving too. And here from the podcast on fibre, laxatives, bowel stimulants and bowel habit, Tigbridge alerts us to the key role dietitians can play within the interdisciplinary team in tackling bowel issues and the importance of building relationships with other clinicians to ensure patients have access to timely dietetic intervention. I would say that my experience of people referring and including us in the MDT approach to tackling the symptoms of constipation, it depends on each clinician and their previous experience of working with dietitians or even their awareness of what we can be involved within. Um, but in terms of, you know, we mentioned about opiates, um, we've talked about perhaps other um, medications, prokinetics, for example, the impact of those on our on our bowel transit and gut transit. I find that sometimes we are an afterthought. Um, we usually are the cavalry and get called in when they go, well, we've thrown all of these things at them. Um, laxatives, for example, you know, in certain <laughs> certain situations, Picolax or, you know, the, um, the PR enemas. Um, and then we go, well, did you actually just think about the total fluid provision that, of, the, of your patient? And have you identified that actually this person is um, struggling with a neurological condition, which could mean they have um, more functional constipation. With regards to getting us involved earlier, I think that comes down to what Kirsten was saying earlier in terms of dietitians making noise. And in the acute setting, it's about really enhancing those relationships with the clinicians you're working with so that you are seen to be involved in those how can I put it? it? It's almost seemed to be not worthy of people, not not worthy of people's time, but they kind of think, well, dietitians probably wouldn't deal with that. And that's where we go. No, that's a fundamental aspect of our role. It's something that we all consider in all of our reviews and all of our assessments in terms of bowel output and whether that's actually as optimal as it usually is for a person. In this next section of the podcast, we explore some of the finer points raised in relation to not only quantity of key nutrients, but also quality. 
Content across Series 1 certainly prompted us to think more critically about the type and quality of macronutrients provided to our patients, specifically when seeking to increase or optimise intakes of key components of our patients' diets, such as protein and fibre. The following clips highlight just how different one gram of protein or one gram of fibre can be from the next. First, we hear again from Professor Phil Atherton, who provided us with so many insightful key takeaways, articulated in a way which simplified what can so easily become an incredibly complex topic. So let me think, you know, so without giving formal definitions of what protein quality is, first of all, um, there there are some sort of things, primary determinants that people might consider to be important. One is the, the quantity or the relative quantity of amino acids, um, the uh, essential amino acids in particular. So, so first of all, you know, the has, sufficiency is, is a factor in quality in my mind. So, you know, we have to think about dose. You know, the quality of a protein is also related to the quantity that you provide it in. Um, so that's, for me, a, a really important thing to, to make, make a point about. Um, the second is the essential amino acid to non-essential amino acid ratio. So, or not necessarily ratio, but certainly the quantity of essential amino acids. And, and you know, as we'll get on to, there, there are many different sources of, from which of dietary protein, including, of course, you know, animal and plant, etc. They all have very different profiles of amino acids within them, which might reflect quality. The other thing is, of course, digestibility. You know, we know, for example, some of the nuts and bolts. So we know that certain, of course, animal proteins in particular have are very high quality in terms of essential amino acid content. We know that 20 grams to 30 grams probably per sitting is good. Um, and we know that probably from, you know, measurement of, again, maximizing dose responses in muscle protein synthesis. Um, so, you know, the general rules of thumb would be, and I'm not saying animal proteins, I will get to that, but... It has to be animal proteins, but, you know, high quality, high content of essentials, solid content, of course, of branch chains and leucine in particular, and probably 20 to 30 grams in a sitting. Having heard from Phil on key aspects of protein quality, we've now chosen a clip from episode two on fibre. Here, Kirsten highlights how the terminology, definition and our understanding of fibre has evolved. Basically, I remember as a student dietitian and then graduating and we, it was all it's 10 years ago now. So we've moved on and basically everybody was talking about, oh, soluble fiber for this and insoluble fiber for that and gut health. And they got to the point where I was having these patients come in and they weren't, they were either not coming back or, you know, they weren't really getting any results with what I was suggesting, you know, 10 years ago. And um, so I actually completely forgot what was soluble or insoluble because I just stopped using it. And now we know why, why that is the reason, because basically we're just it's very ignorant to fiber really it's a lot more complicated than just soluble and insoluble just because a fiber is soluble or insoluble it doesn't actually predict how it's going to react in the gut so we need to look at how the flammability of it how the soluble and then also the viscosity which i can barely say but basically every fiber it reacts differently and 
think about how complicated gut health is as well. It's not just maybe getting someone to open their bowels. It's also looking at, well, how are we going to then improve their gut health long-term and the microbiome? And they'll manage this now, but they're going to manage actually more fermentable carbohydrates and things like this maybe in three months from now as a gut improves. So I think it was just it, our own ignorance to fiber. It's a lot more complicated than putting it into these two umbrella categories. Translating the evidence into simple, practical messages for our patients and other practitioners can be challenging. Here, Kirsten provides some top tips on how you might effectively communicate the beneficial properties of different fibres to your patients. So firstly, I completely agree with taking you know, it is our responsibility, especially as the experts in this area, to then like translate and help other other people work in this area and then our patients. But I would say with the with this evidence that we're now seeing with the different fibers, even though we know that's what's going on, and this is probably explaining why the whole soluble and insoluble categories didn't work for our patients previously, we don't actually need to be advising them, okay, so you can have this as high in viscosity, this is a permeable one, this is it doesn't need to get down to that level. Level. So the way I would explain it to, we need obviously need to have this understanding as dietitians, but the way we're then translating that and that what is actually kind of more transparent in the research is it's not really about single types of fiber, it's about the overall diet. So really we need to be looking at a diet which has got a variety, it's about variety. So instead of like taking one specific food and saying, right, have more of these and have less of that, it's more about just making sure our clients have got a good variety of whole grains, nuts, seeds, fruits, vegetables, and that we're slowly and increasing that to the point where they can tolerate it over time and that that's as simple as it's got to be and I guess the only thing would be really kind of wary of the more fermentable carbs so the FODMAPs because these ones say for instance taking an example talking about today constipation um, if you were to just put lots of fermentable carbohydrates into someone's in diet then they're gonna yeah they might start opening their bowels because suddenly you're drawing in lots of water and you've got extra gas behind that stool but actually they're going to be really uncomfortable so perhaps just being wary of the fermentable carbs and increasing those slowly over time to tolerance but really it's more it's not really about any more single foods it's about the overall diet and getting variety If there is one message that has emerged across the series, it's the many different career pathways which we as nutrition professionals can take, whether that be through the NHS, private healthcare, or alternative avenues such as an industry or the ever-growing arena of online media. In the next two clips taken from episode four on the ACBS, we hear from Emma Emerson, who describes her own career path, why she got involved in specialist groups, and advisory boards and who inspired her along the way. Yes, so you've already highlighted a qualified in 2002 and I started as a basic grade dietitian in the northeast in Sunderland and um, did a few rotations as basic grade and then senior two in the good old days. Uh, but then I took on my first senior role in ITU and that was a particularly interesting role because dietetics were not embedded as part of the MDT. So it was a real challenge to take that role on to 
prove the impact of what a dietitian can have in such a, a patient population that we're so poorly. So I really enjoyed building a rapport with the colleagues and improving the impact on patients' care and um, very quickly became a very much valued member of the MDT. It was during this time that I joined the pension committee um, to ha- you know, I had an opportunity to work with colleagues out with the trusts that I worked in. It was through this that I was given the opportunity to update the critical care section of the Penge Pocket Guide and was um, nominated to uh, do the NCPOD report. Uh, and just having that specialist role really opened up so many opportunities for me. Um, after that role, I went through to be a community team lead. So I flipped from acute care to community and built up that team, um, nutrition support mainly. And then that led me to apply for my first head of service role at another trust and did that for several years. And then that's led me to the trust that I'm in now as another head of service. So I've had a bit of a varied journey, very much thrown into management, but very much a bit of clinical leadership as well. There's, there was there was one one of my um, managers, my one of the trusts, one of my first trusts that I worked at, she she was the type of manager that was a coaching type manager. Mm. And I remember, I just, I remember the day, I remember going into her office to ask if I could go to Bapen. <laughs> <laughs> so I had to ask, yeah, to ask permission. And she looked to me and said, why are you going? Why are you not presenting? And it was just the way that she Mm. opened up those conversations around, actually, I think you can do more. And actually, it was was that conversation and that encouragement that actually led me to apply to be on the pension committee. So it 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 was just, she was so inspiring because she she had that time to see, I see something that you can do. I see something in you and I think you could do more. And I just had never been told that before. So she really inspires me. Um, she'll know who she is. I don't know if she'll listen and I'll not name her. Um, <laughs> but she's followed me through my career and still drops me messages when I get, if I get a new promotion, she says, I know you could do it. The next clips have been selected from the episode on ICU nutrition with Ella to Blanche. Here, Ella describes her career progression and the indirect but beneficial route she took into dietetics. Yes, well, it's been a, a funny and a long and complicated one at times, but um, this is something that people probably don't know about me, but I initially left school and went to catering college. So I trained to be a chef um, because I was passionate about food and uh, wanted to explore that. And I worked as a chef for a number of years. And um, one of my um, roles, I worked in a large hospital catering department. And it was there that um, I got to work in the diet bay and first heard of dietitians. And I was absolutely blown away that there was a profession that was using food to treat patients and to get them better. And from that moment on, that was my career path. And it took me quite a long time to um, educate myself and go back to college and, and do a degree and then a postgraduate registration in, in dietetics. But it was that moment um, that set me off on my path, really. Well, I never knew that about you, Ella. So I've learned something new today already in the first couple of minutes of this session. So, um, and obviously being a chef, uh, 
you took to dietetics, all the, all the knowledge and skills that you developed in, in catering and working as a chef. And, you know, I think it's really key that dietitians still actually have some experience in catering departments to actually understand just what it takes to produce meals on, on certainly grand scales and, and, and how challenging it can be to mm. produce all the different textures and tastes that, that patients require. Um, so before you went into critical care dietetics, did you work in other specialties? I did actually and it's it's quite funny because when I was a student I had two-week placement in ICU and I nearly fainted every single day and I was just like I hate this I hate this it's too overwhelming for me I, I can't imagine ever doing that but I'd had really good experiences on my placements with pediatrics and so I always wanted to go into peds that was where my passion was and um so very early on in my career, after I'd been um, a graduate dietitian, I was given the opportunity to cover a maternity leave in paediatrics. And I absolutely hated it. It didn't live up to my expectations at all. Um, it gave me great experience and um, I, I don't regret that. But by the end of the year, I was desperately looking to get back into adults um, and, and do nutrition support. And that was where my, my passions lay. And my first senior position was um, at UCLH at Queen Square, the neurology hospital. And I didn't know until I got there that I was actually covering two large ICUs. Um, so that was as part of my role. And uh, I was terrified because I thought, what if I go and I faint on my first ward round or something? But within the first week, I had fallen in love with it. And I knew that this was going to be my speciality. Um, and, you know, that's where my, my interest started. So I started um, doing head injuries. That was my, my passion. And at that very early stage in my career, I got involved with the BDA specialist group for neurology and neurosurgery. Um, became a committee member and really for at least 20 years of my career I have been on a committee um, in every part of the roles that I've done. And finally from Ella she described seizing all the opportunities that came her way and what receiving her MBE for services to dietetics meant to her personally. I would say take every opportunity that comes along your way so you know it might involve staying late. It might involve doing a bit of reading at the weekend. But if you turn these opportunities down, you won't get offered them again. You have to grab them, you know, with both your hands and, and take it because they always open doors. And so, you know, get involved with writing a guideline, get involved with writing a committee, do uh, an audit, anything that comes up, do it because there's such great learning from that. It was incredibly emotional for me. Um, most people who know me know that I, I don't have that much confidence and I, I always feel that there's other people that are cleverer than I am or more able than I am. And so to be recognised for... Um, standing up for my profession really and supporting my profession was yeah so touching very very um emotional and, and I'm I'm incredibly proud to be a dietitian and I, and I I felt that that was my recognition for, for what I do. 
Returning to the podcast on fibre, we've selected a clip that describes how we can be influenced and inspired by others. Yeah, I think there's, there is a number of people inspiring me, but I have to say there's one person in particular, and this probably won't come as any surprise in the gut health field, but Megan Rossi. And it's because she's done something which I don't think anyone else has done before. And that's she's obviously a very successful dietitian. She lectures, she, she publishes a lot of papers, but she's also very um, well known. She's famous, you know, um, and she's published book. And, and not in one point in that career, did she have to, you know, go against her profession or anything like that? And also she was talking about quite a taboo subject. You know, it wasn't a popular subject, gut health. It's It was always, you know, weight loss and things like this, which were quite popular and quite, I guess, sexy subjects and gut health wasn't. And so I just think that that is inspiring that, you know, we can use the science and our profession and really, you know, drive the messages to the public in, in the more modern day way. Definitely. My own career pathway has been diverse and varied and opportunities have arisen that I've never imagined would either present themselves or lead to where they have. As our guest described, seizing the opportunities, learning from others, being open to ideas especially from those who inspire us and heeding encouragement when provided can all help achieve a rewarding career. I thought it would be nice to round up this podcast with some closing inspirational remarks from our guests. The additional pressures created by living through a pandemic have taught us how key it is to look out for each other. Here, Aaron and then Tig share their views on what they would tell themselves if they were starting out again and wish to share with you. I think it's something easy to say, but hard to actually impact. It's be kind to yourself. Um, and I think remember that you're not going to know everything straight off the bat and it, and it takes time to develop this knowledge. And I think be important. It's important to ask questions and not be ashamed of asking some of those really basic, simple questions or even asking follow-up questions. Um, I think that's, that's really important. And I think, um, and I think being kind to yourself is a lot of dietitians will ask those questions because they know they have to for professionalism and not working out their scope of practice, but also being kind to yourself for asking those questions because it's completely normal. And I think it should be, should be celebrated really rather than make people feel um, like they don't know things. I would tell myself to be more confident in terms of speaking uh, on behalf of dietitians and providing advice so you have a voice as a dietitian don't be at the table and don't say anything make sure that you represent and remember that you nine times out of ten will have more knowledge about nutrition than most people so do back yourself that's what I would generally say to people and here we draw on Emma's advice to herself on pacing and self-belief I think the first thing I would say is slow down a bit. You know, I, I'm, a, I'm, I'm a quick person. I like to do things quite quickly. Um, but I think it's it's about taking it all in because uh, and being more confident in some of the decisions. Because as dietitians, we are um, autonomous practitioners and we often have to be brave 
and speak up for what we believe in for our profession and for the patients. So if I had to kind of give myself some advice, I would say slow down, but be confident in yourself and know that what you're doing is absolutely the right thing. Similar to Emma, Ella urges us to take our time, derive knowledge from those experienced around us and build skills through a multitude of clinical areas to help you achieve your potential in becoming the expert in your chosen field. We're always in such a hurry. Dietitians seem to be in a more of a hurry than any other AHP professions. And it's, you know, oh, I've been a, a band five for a year. Now I've got to do this. Now I've got to do that. No, you don't. Because once you get to a band seven, you're going to be stuck there for 20 years. Mm. So take, you know, take your time, try and do rotational posts, get all the experience, get to work with lots of different senior dietitians. You learn from them. Um, you know, every speciality is interesting if you put your attention to it. So I think, um, that would be my advice slow down enjoy it there's no I know there's always competition to compare yourself to everybody else but actually the more experience you get in different specialities helps you become a better dietitian when you get to the speciality that you want to do because whatever speciality you eventually end up in it invariably involves lots of other conditions that you know, it's always good to know about, isn't it? So, you know, particularly as a critical care dietitian, you need to know about renal, you need to know about liver, you need to know about gastro, you need to know about surgery, you know, parental nutrition. And so if you've had a chance to do all those specialities as a, a band six in a rotation, you know, you're going to be a much better critical care dietitian when you become um, specialised in it. So I would say take your time, enjoy it and learn from those around you. This Roundup podcast has been a great opportunity to sum up some of the key elements of Series 1. It's been a privilege for me to be involved in this first series of discussions facilitated by Nutrinovo. There have been numerous learning points evident across the series. My thanks go to Aaron Boyson for kicking off the series with an honest and open discussion of how COVID changed our practice, including how it potentially facilitated the rapid transfer of knowledge. With Tig Bridge and Kirsten Jackson, we explored the evolution of knowledge on the properties of different fibres and its effect on bowel function. In the company of Professor Phil Atherton, we delved into the importance of protein quality and activity in muscle function. Emma Emerson provided key insights into the role of the Advisory Committee on Borderline Substances, its importance in securing high-quality nutritional products for the continuity of care across care settings, and how we might get involved in committees and working groups. And Ella Blanche provided expert insights into the evolution of nutrition support in ICU, her efforts as chair of the critical care group of the British Dietetic Association and other committee roles where she was able to influence the status of nutrition support in intensive care and stepping up to influence the delivery of safe nutritional care for ICU patients during COVID-19, which culminated in her being awarded a Queen's Honour. I would specifically like to thank all our speakers in sharing their expertise, insights and words of wisdom that can shape the practice of tomorrow. There are many areas of dietetics that we would wish to explore and I'm therefore delighted to announce that this year we'll see a second series. 
Whilst plans for some episodes are well underway, we'd love to hear your thoughts as listeners as how we might build on Series 1. So do please let us know what topics you might like us to consider in Season 2. If you'd like to leave some feedback, suggest guests that you'd like to hear from, or if you yourself would like to be a guest, then do get in touch with Nutrinovo via Twitter, Instagram, or email info at Nutrinovo.com. Once again, I'd like to express my sincere gratitude to all of season one's guests, Aaron Boyson, Phil Atherton, Tig Bridge and Kirsten Jackson, Emma Emerson and Ella Blanche. If you've enjoyed this series, please do subscribe to the Dietetic Discussion. And if you found this series helpful, insightful, inspirational, do leave a five-star review and share your favourite episode with your colleagues or department. Before I leave you, I'd also like to express my thanks to Nutrinovo, who've agreed to support this podcast into its second series. Their innovative approach to clinical nutrition makes them a great fit. And as new ideas are often seeded through discussions, I hope that a discussion held on this very podcast series might sow the seed for an innovative new pro-source or high-fibre product. For peaks and updates on the next series, why not follow at Nutrinovo across both Twitter and Instagram, or alternatively, check out the podcast section in Nutrinovo's resource centre on Nutrinovo.com. Finally, thank you for taking the time to listen to the Dietetic Discussion podcasts. Plans for the next series are well underway, and Series 2 promises to be a series of more insightful areas with inspirational guests, so be sure to tune in. Hi, it's Alex here from Nutrinovo. I just wanted to add a special thank you to the end of today's Roundup episode, which goes out to Anne Holdaway. As sponsors, we feel incredibly fortunate to be supporting a podcast which is hosted so brilliantly. Work has already begun on Series 2, and we're delighted to continue our support, and that Anne will continue to host. So, on the behalf of Nutrinovo, and I'm sure all of our listeners, I'd like to take this opportunity to say a big thank you to Anne.